Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 54, Revelation, Abandoned the Love You Had at First. And in this episode, we're going to look at the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2, which are Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. And fortunately for our um, understanding, we have an entire book in the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians, which um, will shed a little bit of light onto us about some of the things that this church faced, as well as some of the messages that Paul had for this church a number of years before John is actually addressing the church in Ephesus. And as you may know from your church history, um, Paul was a companion of Timothy and eventually left Timothy to serve as the pastor to the church in Ephesus. And then later, the apostle John himself Um, was very close and near and dear to this church and wrote some of his own works um, to the Christians in Ephesus. And so we have quite a lot to look at in the New Testament, and I'm going to spend just a little bit of time looking at those things, particularly as it relates to love, which is ultimately what Jesus is critiquing this church for having abandoned. And so as we jump into the Son of Man walking among the golden lampstands, We're going to see just what Jesus wants us to understand about love and how that ultimately is the best way for us to be light bearers in the world. So let's jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you remember one of our more recent episodes where I walked through the different parts and the patterns that we can pick up as we read each one of these addresses to the churches, you'll notice that Jesus, in fact, begins by identifying himself by a particular character trait that was true of him from chapter 1. And in this one, he has the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so Jesus is, in fact, the one who walks in the middle of the seven golden lampstands who are all here to shine light onto the space in front of it, but ultimately to shine light onto Jesus himself. And it's not coincidental that when Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, and we'll we'll look at Ephesians in just a second, but when Paul writes to them, he speaks to the Christians themselves in chapter 5 by saying, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so the idea in the book of Ephesians and here in the book of Revelation, we're talking about walking, Jesus walking among the lampstands, Paul telling the Ephesians to walk in 
love. And in fact, we know that Jesus himself in Revelation is walking in love because he is very interested in speaking to the churches about the things that he knows about them. And he tells the church in Ephesus, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And so one of the things that Jesus does by loving this church in Ephesus is he begins with what he can affirm in what they're doing. And the city of Ephesus was was a, um, a major city in the Roman Empire um, it, it, as far as it was related to the, um, the, the world of Asia Minor, where Ephesus actually was. Um, it was a prosperous business center, particularly because it was situated on a trade route from Rome to the east. And so there was a major temple in the city of Ephesus, um, you know, in honor of Diana or Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians was something that you'll hear a number of individuals in Ephesus chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, when Paul is attempting to preach the gospel to these people. And so Ephesus was a prominent city. It was a well-known city. And in the middle of Ephesus, particularly as it relates to pagan temples and pagan idols, there's going to be a lot of teaching and a lot of belief systems that are not consistent with the Christian message. Okay, that's nothing surprising. You and I would face the same thing today. We have a lot of culturally accepted beliefs and norms that may or may not resonate or identify very closely with the Christian message. And so one of the church's roles, for sure, is to work hard toward spreading the gospel, work hard toward cultivating your church, work hard toward um, being a light in the middle of, of a dark world. Part of that is patiently enduring, you know, faithfully representing Jesus, doing your best to live out the truths that you know to be true, working hard, serving in the church, serving one another, visiting orphans, visiting widows, doing the kinds of things that God has in fact called the church to do. And Jesus also tells this church in Ephesus how they cannot bear with those who are evil, but they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So he says that you are enduring patiently, you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So here's a church in Ephesus who takes very seriously the truths and the doctrine and the theology that is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They're enduring, they're faithfully representing him, they're studying, they're working hard. They are trying their best to be a faithful representation of Jesus in their city. And, um, you know, some churches, I've, I've seen these churches before, but they, they thrive on solid doctrine and on deep theological discussions and preaching and teaching with absolutely amazing insight. Um, and, and what Jesus is offering to this church is, first of all, a commendation. These are good things. I'm so glad that you are interested in working hard and enduring and putting up with difficult things and being able to spot where some false teaching has potentially leaked into the church, and you're able to spot that very, very accurately. Um, you know, you're able to, to spot a heretic from 40 miles away. Like, th this church has centered around its, its understanding of the truth, its understanding of the word. It is able to splice and dice and is able to accurately decide that, that certain things do not fit within the church and are able to point these things out and rally around the truth for those who need to know it. 
Um, but a very real caution in such an environment is that a church that that is in this type of a setting will begin to think that their theological positions and their doctrinal conclusions and their hard work is what makes them good and faithful witnesses. And they can forget that their theological conclusions and doctrinal precision is meant to make them better lovers of God and better lovers of other people. But I've seen this, and maybe you have too, but all too often, sound theology and doctrinal precision, while important in the life of the church, take on a life of their own and are even used as reasons for division when others do not agree with you on a particular point of doctrine. It's sad when the study of doctrine, which is always meant to produce more love in the heart, actually produces the opposite. And I've seen this in the church. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe it's happening in your church. I'm not sure. But these Christians, these churches have abandoned the love they had at first. Their love for Jesus and his desire for them to love others has been replaced by their love for doctrine, theological precision, or biblical correctness. Now, we absolutely can thank God for these kinds of people because the church needs sound doctrine, clear thinking, and theological precision. I mean, it would be hard for you to have listened to all uh, 54 episodes of this podcast and not understand that I also am interested in biblical correctness and sound theology and clear thinking. That's the vast majority of the reason why I'm doing this podcast in the first place. And I think it's important to have understanding that leads toward life change. But one of the main thrusts that I also recognize is that if I forget or any of us forget that the reason we are looking to understand sound doctrine and clear thinking and theological precision is so that we will be better light bearers in the world. We will be better lampstands. If we don't see that, if we don't realize that we are called to honor God by the way that we rule and by the way that we act as priests, which is best defined as self-sacrificial laying down one's life for one's enemies type of Calvary-like love, then we can very easily miss the entire point. And so Paul can echo Jesus' words here in Revelation 2, as he does in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You know, when Paul is saying, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I would say, and understand all theological correctness, and have a perfectly well-reasoned articulation of the doctrine of election, or of the doctrine of predestination, which God does in fact refer to in the opening verses, I'm sorry, Paul does, in the opening verses of the book of Ephesians, but recognizing why Paul is taking the time to tell us these things. He's not taking the time to tell us these things so that we will have theological debates between Calvinists and Arminians or between those who hold to free will and those who hold to God's determinism. These are conversations that for some reason tickle the fancy of people in churches today. But if they do not lead us to be able to bear with one another in love 
as Paul exhorts us to do in, in Ephesians chapter 4, then we are taking these truths in a direction that is not helpful. And the way Jesus is framing this discussion is saying it's not just not helpful, it is actually us not being the lampstands that we are actually called to be. You see, love is the point. Jesus told us this in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's not speaking in tongues. It's not having prophetic powers or understanding all mysteries and knowledge. If I speak in tongues and have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and it leads me to love better, well then yes, pursue these things. Welcome these things. Be intrigued by these things. But if these things get in the way of our ability to love other people, to shine the light of God's love both into our own hearts and into the hearts of each other and then towards the rest of the world, then these things, however great they may appear to be to you and to me, are not really all that great. So this is Jesus' address to the church in Ephesus. And to this church, Jesus draws their attention to himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's the one who stands in their midst. The one who, as a faithful witness, calls the churches that surround him to faithfully witness to him, to shine light onto him. And John Stott, in his very, very good book um, called What Christ Thinks of the Church, here's what he says. He says, the church has no light without love. Only when its love burns can its light shine. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. And so, just what does the light we're called to shine onto Christ look like? Does it look like proclaiming doctrinal correctness? Well, it might. If that doctrinal correctness produces in us hearts that love like Jesus did. But the truth is, the light Jesus shined into the world was to love those who desperately needed it. Jesus embodied the love of the Father to a lost and broken world, and he desires his lampstands to do the same. He wants their love for him to be reflected in their love for others. And so if we would have the time, which we don't, but to go back into the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is six chapters long. It's 155 verses. And through the first three chapters of Ephesians, there is only one verb of command given to the church in Ephesus, and it is the verb remember. It is the verb to remember a time when you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth that belonged to the people of God, and strangers to the covenants of promise that God once made to his people that he was hoping would be extended to the whole world. So for three straight chapters, all we read about are all of the tremendous blessings of the Lord that he has poured out onto his people and onto the world through Jesus Christ. The love that the Father has, the compassion, the mercy, the generous riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the things that we stand to gain by being followers of Jesus, set free from our sins and invited in to a new life with him. In chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, there are a lot of practical steps. Bearing with one another in love, speaking the truth in love, putting on Christ, 
putting off false behaviors, husbands loving their wives, children obeying their parents, fathers loving their kids, wives submitting to their husbands, masters treating their slaves with respect, slaves listening to what your masters are telling you. So many practical applications for what it would mean to receive the love of Jesus into your life, learn how to return that love to him, and then how to be gracious through the power of the Holy Spirit in genuinely loving and forgiving and being kind and being tender and being compassionate to one another, both inside the church and as Jesus is addressing the church to Ephesus in Revelation 2, even being light bearers of love to those outside the church. And for years, people have identified that in letters written that Paul writes in particular, he oftentimes does something where he will will write something that is true of you because of something that Jesus has done. And then he will tell you, based upon this, here is how I want you to live. And so for Paul, it's very, very important not to read the Bible as if the Bible is simply a long explanation of here are all of the things that you are supposed to do. Paul knows that that would never work. So he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, here are all of the things that Jesus has done for you. Now, because of this new position he's just put you in, and because of the Holy Spirit that he has just given to you as a result of all of the things that he's just done for you, this is how I want you to live. And so if you read the book of Ephesians as a whole, you read the first three chapters of Ephesians telling you what God has done for you, and then you read the last three chapters showing you clearly what you were supposed to do in response, and here's the hinge. The hinge for how do I go from hearing all that God has done in Jesus for us to becoming the kind of person who is able to love others out of a heart that has truly been loved, the million-dollar question is, how do I transition from simply knowing about love to actually becoming a loving person? And that question is answered by a prayer that Paul offers in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, and I would just like to read it for you briefly. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now Paul offers something here that is astounding and he says when you are rooted and grounded in love that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I actually love that verse because it sounds a little bit strange to our ears when Paul is saying that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And without going into a lengthy discussion, I believe that what Paul is saying is that this knowing of the love of Christ is something that has made personally understandable to your spirit 
by the Holy Spirit himself. The one that Paul is guaranteeing is the means and is the agent through which we come to understand the love of Christ. And so at any point in anyone's life, when they are struggling to be lovers of other people, someone in your family, someone in your church, perhaps you, you are struggling to be loving and to be gracious with someone else who annoys you, who tries your patience, who you feel is, is um, egotistical or proud, and you find yourself unable to actually live out the love that you know you're supposed to have for them, but you can't find that love anywhere. Consistent with Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, and consistent with Jesus who walks in love among the seven golden lampstands, the answer for you or for someone else to become more loving is for them to more fully realize through the Spirit how much they are already loved themselves by God. And I know sometimes churches and Christians, particularly those who act a little bit feisty, sometimes get frustrated thinking that the church is just being pampered all the time with all this kind talk of the love of God and that what the church needs is to know that repentance and standing up and doing the right thing and being concerned for justice is really what the church should be about. And there's not a lot of untruth there. Um, the church really is called to be a certain kind of people who acts in a particular way. But we know, according to 1 John, that, that, that the love we have received, you know, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son for us. So we don't know what love is by us going out tomorrow and trying our best to be loving. The reason we are not as loving as we ought to be is because we do not yet fully understand the implications or the reality of the self-sacrificial, compassionate, um, others-focused love of Jesus that has already been directed to us. And so ultimately, what Jesus is calling the church in Ephesus to do and to be is to go back, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Go back to that point where you realize that love was the center of everything. Go back to that place where you soak in the love that the Father has for you as demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Go back to the place where you realize that love is what actually got you up in the morning. That love was the thing that motivated your actions and that now that you find yourself just going through the motions, you need to be reoriented to why it is that you're doing these things. Because without love, we are clanging symbols and noisy gongs like it means nothing love is what jesus died to create in us and it begins by recognizing the love that he had for us in coming in the first place over the past several weeks i've been working my way through a sensational book called the crucifixion of the warrior god by Greg Boyd, and I would like to just read a couple of sentences from the, some of the reading that I covered this past week. He says, For Paul, the whole understanding of faith, justification, and sanctification is rooted in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20 
Reflecting this same cross-centered focus, Paul instructs disciples to imitate God, which he not surprisingly defines as walking in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians chapter 5. To imitate God clearly then is to live in a way that reflects this self-sacrificial love displayed on Calvary. Hence, everything we do is to reflect God's cruciform agape love. Indeed, Paul is so bold as to claim that any activity we engage in and any character we display, however virtuous, spiritual, or impressive it may appear, is altogether worthless unless it is motivated by and characterized by this kind of love. You know, I read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and a few chapters later, Paul simply sums it up this way. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Jesus has promised to this church in Ephesus if they are to repent, and to repent means to change your mind. Repent means to go back to where you went astray. Repent means to remember back from where you have fallen. Go back to that spot and pick it up from there and start moving forward. And that may be something as simple as looking at the activities and the actions that you are doing and allowing yourself and your view of those activities to strip out from underneath them well, I've been doing all of these things because this is what good Christians do and allow yourself the freedom to really explore is love for others what is driving all of this activity? Because I'm hesitant to think that that's really the case. I think we live in an age today where busyness takes over the lives of virtually everyone and I do not think love is driving that. I think that is a burden that we've placed onto ourselves to feel a particular way about ourselves and all that we are accomplishing. And many of us have such a need to feel important that we just fill our schedules with lots and lots of things that are not really loving toward others or toward God and his kingdom, but are there for our own benefit. Whatever that happens to be in your life, love is what we are repenting back to. Not just to do a bunch of activities and to be involved in a lot of things, but to ask ourselves whether love is really what is driving it. And at the end of this section to Revelation, to the, or I'm sorry, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And here's this idea of the word conquering. It's um, the word in Greek, nikaios, and it simply means victory. Um, overcoming is the way I think the New International Version translate this verse, um, or this word rather. So it's to overcome, to conquer, to be victorious. Um, the word itself, Nikaios, is where the athletic brand Nike gets its name. Um, it's simply the little swoosh that you see on the side of the shoe. Nike wants to be a, an athletic apparel company focused on victory. Well, great. Jesus wants the church to be focused on victory as well. And so he uses this word conquer. And as I shared with you in the pattern form of each of these addresses to the seven churches, the solution, the promise granted to those who overcome or to those who conquer shows up in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. And in the eating from the tree of life is one, in fact, that sort of takes center stage. And so in Revelation 22 verses 1 to 2, here's what it says. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack in those (laughs) short few verses, and we will eventually when we get towards the very end of the book. But in short, what I would like to point out is just this. There is a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit and symbolically representing the kind of sustenance and the kind of variety and the kind of gracious compassion and mercy of our God to not only offer one tree that produces 12 kinds of fruit, but every single month a new fruit surfaces. But the last little phrase in verse 2 is what I want to draw our attention to here, and that is that the leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. The nations is what our light bearing is concerned with. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation is what the lamb laid down his life to win. And it is what he is encouraging his light bearing lampstands to also be focused on now. And so he's offering them the chance to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, if they overcome. But then when you get to this tree in Revelation, emphasis is placed strongly upon the blessings that same tree will provide for the nations. And so the point being is that as lampstands who are here in the midst of a dark world and of a decaying world and of a world that does not understand, it is the self-sacrificial, compassionate, others-oriented, power-under kind of love of Jesus' followers, which will be the means through which the most blessing can come to the world. And there is a lot that Christians today, I think, can learn about actual love. Not love that says we are kind to those who are kind to us, but it is a love that knows that the love of our Savior had a love so great for us that he was willing to give up his life in order to maintain it. And he is in fact calling his followers to the same otherworldly kingdom of God type of love that does not focus on the, the things that the people in this world do as if to love those people means that we love what they love or that we love what they do, or that we approve of every action they participate in. But what love compels us to do is to understand that if Paul can pray in Ephesians chapter 3, that the best way, in fact the only way, for loving actions to actually come from the people that God has called to be his witnesses, the only way for you and I to become better lovers of God and of people is to more rightly understand and absorb the love that the Father has for us. This is the way the New Testament communicates love in its transformative state. You first have to understand the compassionate love of God for you, and that, through the Spirit, will transform you into being somebody who can self-sacrificially, compassionately love someone else.
if that is true, then there is no other way to encourage those outside the Christian faith to want to enter the Christian faith than for us to be self-sacrificially carrying the message of Jesus to them. And the only way to carry the self-sacrificial, compassionate love of Jesus for them is in a self-sacrificial, compassionately loving way. This is it. So we spend far too much of our time, you know, dinking around with various doctrinal things and precisional things. And those things are helpful and those things can be important. But the way we go about talking about them, the way we go about shining our light, the way we go about realizing, let's be honest, sometimes I would just rather not love. And so it's really convenient at times to use my doctrinal differences as my reason for not loving you. Instead of going to the Lord and saying, my heart doesn't want to love somebody who annoys me. Would you deal with that in my heart so that I can more accurately represent you to them in the way that I love? Are our churches the kinds of places where people who are not religious or who do not go to church could come to our church and feel loved even though they do not know what we are talking about or possibly even agree with what we believe. We are in an age right now where making enemies and feeling justified in doing so feels very, very good both to those outside as well as those inside the church. This should not exist. The love of Christ for people finding its root and its source in the love that Christ has for us is the defining characteristic of the followers of Jesus. He, Jesus himself even says, in this way, you will be children of my Father who gives rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God's compassionate care for his world is indiscriminate in its pouring out of blessing. He wants us also to be indiscriminate in the way that we pour out his love. And so that's what Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus actually is. This is the very first of the seven messages. We will have other areas to look at as we go, but we certainly will keep in mind the fact that whatever else we say must also be rooted in the self-sacrificial, compassionate, power-under Calvary-like agape love of Jesus. And that is what we hope for. That is what we long for. We are called to love. And if you would like even a refresher on what that means, I I would definitely encourage you to re-listen to episode 49, How Do You Read the Law? The sermon that I preached a number of months ago on the parable of the Good Samaritan and recognizing that if love is supposed to be the transforming agent, all of the self-justifying reasons people come up with to withhold love from other people are some of the darkest places that exist. It is into that darkness that God so loved the world, that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent his loving, self-sacrificial, compassionate son into a dark world filled with self-justifying people who came up with all kinds of reasons 
why they shouldn't love people that weren't like them. That very fact will cripple the church and render us all ineffective entirely if Jesus does not deal with it in us and if we do not deal with it in us as well. Jesus threatens this church in Ephesus that if they do not repent, he will remove their lampstand. And I would like to submit to you that there are churches today across the world that have buildings, that have pastors, that have worshipers, that have staff members that are no longer lampstands because they're not interested in actually learning how better to love Jesus, to love one another, or to love the world. They are rallying around their particular doctrinal correctness and in all of the ways that they are different and therefore seemingly better than those with whom they disagree. And they sort of batten down the hatches, if you will, and are sort of sitting back waiting for the destruction of those that that happen outside of them because they believe they're the only ones that are right. Jesus knows. He sees into everything that is that way. And he is not pleased with some of what he sees because he's called us to faithfully represent him to the world. And the only way to faithfully bear witness to Jesus who embodied self-sacrificial, compassionate love, the only way to do that is to also embody self-sacrificial, compassionate love. That's it. There's no other way to pull it off. And so next week, we will dive into the next church that Jesus is addressed to the church in Smyrna. For this week, that's all the time we have. Talk to you next week.